Hello, and welcome back to Tectonic, a podcast that looks at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. Last week, we heard from The Economist, Carlotta Perez, that time was running out to harness the benefits of technological innovation for the whole of society. But if we fail to do so, it could lead to another global recession, or worse. Our second guest is Jimmy Wales, founder of Wikipedia, who describes himself as a pathological optimist. But when I met him shortly after the first debate of the US presidential campaign, he was unhappy about the failure of the media to point out blatant untruths coming from the mouths of politicians, particularly Donald Trump. In a sense, I do think there is a more acute awareness that actually a job of journalists is to fact-check. In the news section, it's not the place for your personal opinions, but it's not your personal opinion. If he says he didn't say it and you have him on record saying it, we need to tell the public that. The result of the US election is now clear, but the ability to separate fact from fiction remains as important as ever. This is something that Jimmy has made part of his life's mission, as he told me when I spoke to him. So, Jimmy, the beginning seems like a good place to start. What gave you the idea for Wikipedia? I was watching the growth of the free software movement, or open source software, as most people know it, and seeing programmers coming together to collaborate on all the really great software that runs the internet. All projects written largely by volunteers, sharing their code under a free license. And I realized that that kind of collaboration could spread beyond just code into all kinds of cultural works. And the encyclopedia was the first concept that came to my mind of something that people could collaborate on if only they had the tools to do it. Were you a big encyclopedia reader when you were a kid? I was, I was, yeah. I grew up with the World Book Encyclopedia and then later Britannica and uh, always loved sort of broad, general context. Yeah. So when was it founded? When did you set up Wikipedia? So I set up Wikipedia first in 2001. It was an outgrowth of a prior project called Newpedia, which was from 1999. And then in 2003 is when I donated everything into the nonprofit structure. Before that, it was just a project of nebulous legal arrangements. And then it grew and grew and grew and grew. Certainly did. I mean, did you have any idea it was going to reach the dimensions that it is today? It's the fifth biggest website in the world. You have 80,000 active users. You have an astonishing mm. number of people reading it every day. Yeah, I mean, I always say I'm a pathological optimist. So I remember looking at a list of the top 100 websites back then and seeing an encyclopedia reference style site around number 50. And I thought, if we do a really good job, we might make it in the top 100 or maybe the top 50. Of course, we've made it into the top five. So bigger than even I had thought. But I always knew it was a big concept and a big idea. What do you think explains the secret of its success? Why do people go to Wikipedia the whole time? I think there's a few things. So one, oftentimes if you're doing an informational search, so if you type in Queen Victoria, probably what you're looking for is Wikipedia. You're looking for a basic summary, you know, a few pages long. You're not necessarily looking for a book-length treatment, but nor are you looking for random web pages and things like that. You're just basically looking for the history and the facts with good citations and things like that. So that makes it very popular with the reading public. And, you know, for the editors, it's really all about meeting interesting people, people who share a common interest with you, doing something useful with your time. You know, you could spend four hours on a Saturday night playing Grand Theft Auto or something like this, and uh, at the end you think, well, I've just wasted four hours of human lifespan. 
or you spend four hours working on Wikipedia, and you say, okay, well, like, the world's a little better tonight yeah. than when I started. Who is your typical Wikipedian? I mean, who are these people who stay up in the middle so of the night writing um, our entries? Yeah, so we're pretty geeky. Some of the, the basic stats are, so we have about double the percentage of PhDs compared to the general public, which doesn't mean Wikipedia is mostly written by PhDs. It just means there's more PhDs in our, in our community. A lot of tech geeks, so we do come from the tech geek world. Unfortunately, about 85% male, and there's a lot of reasons for that, good and bad reasons, or I'd say neutral and bad. I don't know if there are any good reasons for it. And, you know, it's a very nice community, so I think culturally we tend to be a bit different from bloggers, uh, a bit different from people who are trying to be famous on Twitter or YouTube or something like that, but uh, largely a very nice community. How do you finance it? You were saying earlier that it's a not-for-profit organization. Yeah, so we're a charity, and we exist largely based on the small donations. So we ask from time to time for donations on the website, and our annual budget's around $70 million, And we get the vast majority of that money from people donating you know, less than $100. And we also have some major donors, some foundation grants, but really more than 90% of the money is, is from the small donors. Do you ever regret not monetizing it? No, 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 not at all. You know, it's, uh, I feel like in 500 years, people will look back on this era and they'll say, oh, wow, like a lot of bad things happened, a lot of good things happened in that era. One of the good things was Wikipedia. You know, a group of really sweet, geeky people came together just to give a gift to the world. Hopefully, we have a positive impact on culture, you know, in the sense of, in a world of clickbait headlines and uh, ranting and raving and so on. We try to be a calm, neutral environment. Well, we're not perfect, of course, but we try. And it's yeah. really great that there's a community of people who want to do the right thing. What are the most controversial subjects? What are the most kind of edited what? pages that you have? Yeah, so there's a couple of ways of looking at it. So first of all, it's very popular to look at the most edited pages as a metric for most controversial, but that's not necessarily true. Certainly, you know, the most edited pages tend to be the U.S. presidents of George W. Bush, Barack Obama, that sort of thing. But that's partly just because they're in the news a lot, and it's important, and history is made on a regular basis that needs to be recorded. And within the community, it's very rare that we would have any sort of massive internal conflict about what should go on the George W. Bush page. Obviously, people may have different views of him, but you know we have experience in the community of a certain neutral writing style and so forth. So within the community, our controversies tend to be much more arcane, sort of obscure editorial matters about punctuation and things like this. And then, you know, other questions around behavioral standards. One of the things that we try to be is a collegial and welcoming environment, but you'll sometimes have people who are doing very good work, but they're also difficult to deal with. And so those people can be quite controversial in the community because if you're being difficult and you're not doing good work, then okay, well, you just get yourself banned quite quickly. And if you're doing good work and you're actually nice to everyone, oh, great, you're a hero, that's not a problem. But it's those sort of, hmm, some good, some bad, and it's just very human. You know, like, what do you do? And of course, most organizations face this kind of thing, you know, where you've got uh, maybe an employee who's a high performer in some sense, but also is like, annoying everyone. So then what do you do about that? It's very hard. As you were saying, there's a kind of preponderance of male geeks who are writing this. And so, I mean, one of the subjects I gather was a bit of a controversy is whether you should have written about Kate Middleton's wedding dress. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that was so. one I interestingly weighed in on myself. So it was, you know, right at the time of the royal wedding, and someone had created an entry on Kate Middleton's wedding dress, which was actually quite good, had dozens of references and so forth, and it was promptly nominated for deletion by someone who said, whatever, you know, it's just a dress, this is stupid. 
And I pointed out that we have some 100 entries on various flavors of the Linux operating system. Some quite obscure, and nobody complains about those. And this is something that, if you really step back and think about it, like it has cultural impact, obviously business impact. There's all kinds of things that are important about this. It'll have fashion impacts on, you know, it's important and worth writing about. And there's quality sources. And this was accepted very quickly. But it's that kind of thing where sometimes... It's one of the reasons we want to have a more diverse community. And I actually have gotten criticism about this example from someone who said, oh, but when you think of women, why do you think it's all about dresses and fashion? I'm like, no, 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 that's not my point. A better example would be when we look at novelists who've won important literary prizes, the female authors tend to have shorter entries than the male authors. And this isn't, you know, I know hundreds of Wikipedians. This isn't because the male Wikipedians think, oh, it's some girl book, like who cares, right? It's not important. It's not that kind of overt sexism, but it is that people write what they know. And there is a, a fact about literature that there are novels that are more predominantly read by women, more predominantly read by men. And so people, you know, you're a male computer geek and you read this fantastic book and you go and write and you write about the author. And there's this other fantastic book which didn't really appeal to you or wasn't marketed to you or whatever and you didn't write about it. So this is why diversity in the community is, is quite important. How's the sharing economy going to develop, do you think? It's the Wikipedia model. Can you translate it into other areas? Yeah, I mean, I do think so. And I think there's still a lot of room left for interesting things to happen. Certainly, Wikia, my for-profit company, we've got a few hundred thousand wiki communities, the 15th most popular website. It's about fandom, people who are real fans of TV shows, the movies, computer games, things like this. Really passionately sharing information that's of interest to people in that broader fan community. That's just one example. I still think there's a lot to look at in the future about video, animation, you know, communities arising to do those kinds of things. One that I, I'm always hopeful for, but so far I haven't seen much progress, is journalism and newspaper comments, which unfortunately still tend to be hostile and dangerous places to go down and read the comments, even in very quality newspapers. That's very uh, close to him. What, what do you think we ought to do about that? How, uh, how do we raise the I think one of the, the one of the biggest things that I think makes a big difference is genuine community. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Community control. So normally, if you go to a newspaper and you scroll down and you start reading the comments and you see someone saying something obnoxious, your only real option is to yell at them. Um, and so then what happens is the two most annoying people end up yelling at each other and everybody else just backs away. Whereas if you have people in the community, not just staff members, right, who can moderate, people who are trusted and respected by the community to say, no, this is not all right, and so on. And there's been some progress in that area. I mean, things are a little better than they used to be, but it's still a big project, I think. People say that we live in a post-truth world, and in a way, you're in the truth business. <laughs> Do you think that's true, that well, politics has now entered the realm of fiction? 
It is a bit disturbing because you do see quite a lot of fiction in politics, and fiction's quite generous, um, let's just say blatant lies. And, um, well, we were speaking here on the morning after the first debate, and, you know, there were several points in which Donald Trump said things that were just blatantly false. And, you know, when he says, I never said this, right? And you're like, well, look, it's in your Twitter feed. Like, here it is. Like, here's the exact link. You did say that. Okay, well, whatever. He's an interesting character. Let's be, you know, generous to him. But what's disappointing to me is when I go and I read, and and a lot of newspapers and news sites have come along, but I was just reading this this piece on Fox News where they sort of reported that uh, Hillary accused him of saying this, and he denied it. And that was the end. Like, and I want one more sentence from the reporter saying, and by the way, here's where he said it, right? Yeah. Because if you just came to this as a reader who hasn't been obsessive about politics, and you read it and you say, oh, well, he said that she said this and he denied it, and like, where does that leave me? I don't know. So I am happy that, in a sense, I do think there is a more acute awareness that actually a job of journalists is to fact check. In the news section, it's not the place for your personal opinions, but it's not your personal opinion. If he says he didn't say it and you have him on record saying it, we need to tell the public that. How heavily edited is Donald Trump's page? I assume quite heavily. I haven't actually looked at the numbers. But you know, normally in these kinds of things, as I said earlier, there will be a lot of action because he says new things every day and obviously he's in the news and that's fine. But there won't be things blowing up inside the community where we're having a real existential crisis about how do we deal with this. We understand how to deal with this. Yeah. Do you personally come under pressure from friends, companies, governments to tweak pages? Not really. I mean, people inquire, of course, how do I deal with this? And I try to help people sort of do the right things. In terms of pressure, it's actually one of the things that I find really interesting is that even very controversial people sometimes they're not worried about the controversial things about themselves because that's part of who they are and what they've said and what they've done. They want to make sure that their side of the story is included. But they're often more worried about some fairly arcane bits of their biography that we made a mistake on. And you're like, wow, we we said you said all these things, which are quite shocking. Yeah, but I did say all those things, right? But (laughs) you said this about me. You said I went to Catholic school and I didn't. So could we take, oh, okay, well. Interesting. And the sourcing is very important on Wikipedia pages. Is that a matter of contention as well? I mean, do you accept all sources, or is there some kind of filtering out of acceptable? Yeah, we do have a a policy on reliable sources, and it is, I think, fairly subtle and sophisticated as it's grown up over the years. To think about things like, you know, would you regard a blog as a source? Well, your knee-jerk reaction is no probably not, but it depends in a sense. So, for example, if you're talking about a politician's own views and they have blogged about that on their official blog, that's a pretty good source for what their own views are. If it's a blog written by a journalist at a reputable newspaper, you know, there's still some editorial oversight and there's some fact-checking and responsibility there. If it's just some random person's blog and they make some factual claim, that becomes much shakier because you don't have an institutional background in fact-checking and so forth. And then there's other questions like, you know, certain areas of pop culture. You won't have published academic resources. Indeed, you might not even have newspaper resources. So it, it becomes a little more complex to say, well, what do we regard as reliable or not in this context? And for some really contentious issues, like, say, the dispute between Ukraine and Russia. Both sides are saying that their sources are better than the other ones. How does that play out? So this one is super fascinating. 
um, and it's one that I've been looking into lately. So there was a question raised to me from members of the community about concerns raised about Russian Wikipedia versus Ukrainian Wikipedia, and that they have a different narrative to some extent. And this happens from time to time, but generally it tends to smooth out over time. And, and ideally, both language versions would present, well, the Russian government claimed this, and the Ukrainian government claimed that, and you know, we're going to give you the references to who said what, so you can then begin to form your own opinion. And the concern was, have the Russians infiltrated Wikipedia. And so I went and asked, you know, a very prominent Ukrainian Wikipedian, what do you think? You can read Russian. What's your view on this? And she said, no, I, I mean, I know the Russian Wikipedians. They're Wikipedians like, like all over. And what she said is, there's no need for them to control Wikipedia directly and infiltrate. They control all the sources. And so when all of the Russian language sources tow the party line, then it becomes difficult because then the Russian Wikipedians need to look beyond that to English language sources, to Ukrainian language sources. They need to cite those sources, but not everyone in the Russian community can read those sources. So that introduces some complexities and problems. And similarly, the Ukrainians are all reading Ukrainian sources and English sources, which are very different from the Russian sources. And so over time, these things tend to work themselves out. I can't sit here and tell you today that Russian and Ukrainian Wikipedias are identical in their presentation of events. I think it'll be some time before we get to a consensus view. But we try. And for me, that's a huge step forward, particularly if you're living in one of these places and you're only fed one side of the story. I think at least when you go to Wikipedia, hopefully you see a good stab at, you know, why do Ukrainians say the plane was shot down by the Russians? If you're a Russian, you should know that. You should know why people disagree with your government. Whether you end up siding with your government, that's for your own human judgment but that you've at least been exposed to the argument is, is really critical. As one of the founding fathers of the internet, as it were, <laughs> what's the next big thing? Um, gosh, I always say if I knew what that was, I'd get started building it right <laughs> now. But I mean, I still think the ongoing move to mobile is still huge. Wikipedia, we've recently had some of our first days where page views on mobile matched page views on desktop. And we're a little late, actually, compared to some other websites. We're very, very strong desktop presence by the nature of what we do. But we're also quite natural on the go. People think of something and you want to look it up. And so that's still very important. And for us, it's important because we know that because we're a charity with a goal of a free encyclopedia for everyone on the planet in their own language, we're really interested in what's going on in the languages of the developing world where people are now coming online for the first time, but they're typically coming online for the first time on mobile devices. And so we need to think about... What are their needs? How do we accommodate them? So that, for us, is really huge. Broader technology, I'm fascinated by driverless cars, autonomous vehicles. I think it's coming faster than people realize, and I think it's going to have wider impacts than people realize. Yeah. Uh, you know, We normally think about, ooh, that's going to be quite something for Uber and taxi drivers, but it's going to have all kinds of cultural implications as well, as you can potentially imagine sticking your kids in the car and they're taken to football practice without you. Really? Yeah, maybe. And you envisage this world of everyone on the planet with a smartphone has access for free to the sum of human knowledge. What does that do to our planet? I mean, I hope it does good things. Certainly, the ability for people to get a broad basic education through the internet, that's not just Wikipedia, it's a lot of different modalities, but the ability to fact-check things, you know, people can be quite vulnerable they have limited information or controlled sources of information, 
And we're moving away from that largely, although there's still some issues with censorship around the world. But I always give this example. There might have been a time when the Chinese government, by filtering information, could conceal from people that Liu Xiaobo won the Nobel Peace Prize for his work on democracy. Now, they don't really have an expectation that people won't know that, but by censoring that information, they send a strong domestic signal of, yeah, but don't talk about it in your blogs and you know your chats and things like that. So that's still a problem, but it's in some small way a step forward that they understand that they can't really control what people know. And that's, I think, quite a big breakthrough. We'll be back with another episode of Tectonic next week when we hear from Nadaf Zafria, an Israeli intelligence officer turned entrepreneur, about the changing world of cybercrime and how to tackle it. In the meantime, if you'd like to comment on today's show or suggest any topics you'd like us to cover in future episodes, please email us at tectonic at ft.com. This episode of Tectonic was produced by Fiona Simon. <laughs>